I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Hi, everyone. I hope all is well. In this week's episode, I'm speaking with Amy Default. Amy is a sustainable textile industry writer. She also works as a sustainability and communications director for Botanical Colors, as well as the communications lead for TS Designs. She also co-runs the Southeastern New England Fiber Shed, which has goals to create a digestible dialogue with farmers about climate change in order to create a regional supply chain that supports Massachusetts and Rhode Island-based textile businesses. Hello, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you start out by introducing yourself? Yep. My name is Amy um, Dufault, and I am, I guess I'm calling myself a regenerative storyteller nowadays, Hmm. but I've been a journalist for 25 years and really focused on sustainability for about, you know, about 15 years now, and so I, I work in, I wear many different hats, but I always come back to this idea of like how we communicate out a story. So whether that's through an event or it's through writing or it's through Zoom events, <laughs> you know, it's like this kind of finding, finding new ways to frame a story. So that's kind of the main thrust of what I do alongside communications. Mm. And would you say that the regenerative aspect of your storytelling is also related to regenerative farming practices? I'd like to think about it like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just feel like, you know, for the past couple of years where regenerative just became this word we're suddenly all saying, it applies to everything, right? It's like, suddenly it's like regenerative farming, but also, you know, how do you regenerate something in terms of say a natural dye without you know over foraging how do you regenerate the history of something how do you regenerate you know um you know the culture culture and history around things so there's there's this idea of regeneration just kind of pops up frequently so yeah it it's just kind of my word now i use for everything mm. I agree. I I definitely feel like regenerative can mean so many things, but I also feel like as someone who's interested in regenerative farming, that also is going to carry into all of the other aspects of our society that are affected by regenerative farming practices. It also, in a lot of ways, relates to the social aspects and the political aspects of farming. So absolutely understand what you're saying and where you're coming Mm -hmm. from. When you're talking about the storytelling aspects, I know that you also work with the Southeastern New England Fiber Shed. And before we talk specifically about the work you do there, I'm really interested in how you began working with agriculture, whether it was a part of your upbringing or the professional aspects of collaborating with farmers? Hmm. Well, I I mean, I wish I could say I grew up on a farm and I wish, (laughs) (laughs) and so I'd have it kind of steeped into some, some, it would be inherently part of me, but I actually, I mean, and though I do have, you know, great stories of being a kid on farms in Maine and up in 
uh, Quebec with my relatives. You know, I, I definitely have come to understand and focus on farms more, I guess, in the past five or so years. And I, I guess it came from, you know, working and having events in, in New York, in the, like in the city all the time. And we'd always talk about farmers and, and talk about people who are never there for any of these kind of high level conversations, you know, like, okay, it's great that we're doing this, but there's absolutely no farmers. There's no millennials. There's no garment workers. There's no like, what is going on? Who do we think we are having these conversations without the people we're talking about? This is ridiculous. And then, you know, I was, I've been good friends with Eric Henry, who's the president of TS Designs for about a decade. And Eric has pulled me in for a couple years into Farm Aid and because he was making t-shirts for Farm Aid. And so, you know, I, as part of Farm Aid, we would, you know, like the first year was the best. We went to farms. We worked with food advocacy groups. We talked with food advocacy groups. And I realized how much the crossover between food and fiber was just so, was so evident to me that, you know, here were two industries that needed to talk way more to broaden the conversation. So farming was really kind of coming in through friends talking about it. And then when Rebecca Burgess launched Fibershed, you know, back, God, I don't even know how many years ago that was. I want to say like at least a decade ago, Hmm. I was a writer and I was writing about Rebecca. And I remember it was just the coolest thing to me, what she was doing. And this idea of like sourcing a wardrobe from 150 miles or so around where you live and trying to, you know, trying to put it all together, these things that you'd wear from your jackets to your underwear to your socks. And that that struck me as something very different. And then, uh, you know, just through the years, wanting to start my own fiber shed, finally meeting two people who we ended up, we did start the Southeastern New England fiber shed and both women coming from really, you know, coming from farm backgrounds. And in my experience coming from working with designers, working like, how do you sell things? How do you market things? How do you tell a unique story? We ended up when we came together, it was just like this perfect, perfect trio so I learned a lot about shearing and farming and soil and carbon. And, you know, they just kept teaching me things I'd only been on the fringes of. And I was suddenly on a farm looking at soil, taking samples of soil, talking with farmers, learning the language. And that's really, it's like an, a whole education, just being with farmers right now and understanding what the challenges are, how one can best help. How do you not, how do you not replicate the past? You know, how do you move forward with these farmers creating new, new systems, new supply chains, new ways of thinking about the, their importance as part of how we get, you know, a t-shirt or a pair of jeans. And can you talk about the work you do with Southeastern New England Fiber Shed? Yeah, we've been doing, well, so I'll, I'll, I guess I'll back up a little bit. So the, so as a co-founder of this fiber shed, think, you know, everything changes. People have to do, move on and do things. And 
so Karen Schwalbe, who was is is the president executive director of CMAP, which is the Southeastern Massachusetts Agri- Agricultural Partnership. She, we've been housed underneath CMAP since we were founded, and Sarah Kelly, who was the other uh, co-founder of this fiber shed, has gone on to do an amazing amazing things, but has now moved down to D.C. We're still doing projects together, and she just put out this amazing, um, what is it, Sustainable Agriculture Funders, SAFSF. Mm. I think you might know about LaShawn. Um, so, yeah, it's just like a fiber roadmap that's mm-hmm. an extensive paper. So Sarah, that Sarah was the one who started this fiber shed. So, uh, and then the pandemic hit. So Karen has been completely trying to help farmers stay afloat that she's worked with for years that really had nothing, maybe it had nothing to do with fiber. So it was kind of helping them retain their businesses. And I've been sort of on my own for the past year and a half with this fiber shed. And during that time, you know, when we first started, we had a round table where we got, you know, 75 people, kind of key people in our area from you know, from farmer to finished product, politicians, universities, we had a big roundtable discussion just to see where we were at. And then we've since done a number of projects, like um, two wool pools, where we met farmers trying to help them find new purpose for their wool that they were throwing away, which I can honestly say, we never solved that problem. And we still have that problem. And farmers are still throwing away their wool here. So that's something you know, that we're, we're still working on, or I'm still working on with some new people. And, you know, other things that we did, we, we had an alpaca cohort. We're actually featured in the fiber shed book that came out last year, the year before. I I keep saying last year, but last year was like the missing year Mm. with the pandemic. So I think it was the year before that, but so we had an alpaca cohort with a grant from fiber shed where we were helping six alpaca farmers learn how to better sequester carbon as part of their alpaca farming and, you know, farming practices, I'll just say. So that was interesting, learning everything from how do you talk about this stuff without turning people off Mm. to, you know, to actually finding grants for farmers, which was impossible. So, it's like this, it seems like all the old ways with, with all the things we want to do, it's so evident that they're not working, that grants aren't there. The, um, the ingenuity, the technology, there's a lot of things that just aren't there. So, you know, even the cert, this survey we did with the Patagonia grant, kind of hoping we would get more responses from farmers. And I know for about 40 farmers responded to the survey we put out. And we did learn about acreage. We did learn about fiber producing animals and who's throwing away what, who makes what amount of money. It was a good snapshot. But a lot of these things just seem like, you know, we keep going back to, again, these kind of old ways and old, just kind of old ways of looking at how we can get a fiber to finish product. So I've definitely taken a pause and I'm listening a lot more. I'm reading a lot more, talking with farmers. I've been on a million Zoom calls with people, <laughs> <laughs> as we all have. 
<laughs> and just trying to like, I mean, I was just reading some really pretty amazing notes with Mar Marcia Lafranchi. La I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. And she, she runs the Cotton Diary. So I was just reading over notes from two meetings that she's had that I couldn't make with people really thinking outside the box about cotton and supporting farmers and what needs to be done in terms of the conventional way to this new way and new systems and support, like support systems that really need to be in place for these farmers to even want to do better, want to grow fiber better, treat the planet better. I mean, it's, it's really, it's not, I mean, it can feel overwhelming, but I feel like there is a lot of hope. There are a lot of solutions. We're just not thinking logically about it. We still want these other, these other old solutions to work and they don't. And that's what's the frustrating part. <laughs> Getting people to say, take your sledgehammer, smash the foundation of everything you know, and get ready to build again. That's where we're at right now. I so identify with everything that you're saying as far as there having to be a solution that is somewhere between getting rid of what has existed and coming up with something that is more universal and that works more for the times that we're living in. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious if, if it's possible, if you can share some of the things that you've come across or some of the solutions or the ways that people are looking at transforming or rebuilding the cotton industry. Yeah. Well, I guess the, the clearest, clearest way I have to talk about that is TS Designs, who I work for as a communications director. We just, we launched this 10,000 pounds of cotton project at the beginning of the year. And so though TS Designs has worked with farmers for a long time and we have U.S. grown and sewn t-shirts and Eric has got some really great, you know, his, his talk about how he's been around since the seventies, NAFTA came in and, you know, he, how he had to rebuild himself as a business, became the first B Corps in North Carolina and has really, really tried to think about how to make a supply chain cleaner and support the farmer all the way through, you know, to the finished product, like working with the Carolina textile district and, and others. So the 10,000 pounds of cotton project is so edited down, which is why I love this. It's a true spotlight on an experience, which is we were, we're working with one farmer, Andrew Burleson. Andrew has grown our cotton. We have bought 10,000 pounds of cotton already from him. We bought it for, for quite a bit more than he was being offered for it. And, and so, what we're doing is we're working from what, what Andrew wanted to get paid and working our way up instead of backwards, which is, you know, the market dictates what you're going to get paid. And hopefully it's going to be enough that you can pay your bills. But most of the time, as you know, LaShawn, I know, I know, you know a lot about this. The farmers are not getting paid, but they should be getting paid. And so it's this vicious cycle of they can never get their head above water. Why can't they get their head above water? And why can't we pay them more? Why aren't brands stepping up to the plate mm -hmm, to actually mm -hmm. want to, to put, you know, start, you want to have a sustainability, some sustainability messaging? Well, walk the talk 
and lay some money down for this farmer to really be able to invest in something. Like, so Andrew is doing no-till. And he mm. didn't even know that that was something that we would think was cool. He just thought organic was probably what we were going to ask for. Like, no-till is really great. So like Erica always says, we're meeting the farmer where they're at. And, but I have had side conversations with parts of our supply chain, which we are having monthly Zoom uh, presentations with each part of our supply chain. So we're actually, next week is part four. And so we'll be at Contempra Fabrics. And they are the people who take our cotton that's been ginned and milled and made into yarn. And now it's going to be made into fabric. So we have brought each person on on our little, you know, presentation, and they talk about things and what they do as part of the 10,000 pounds of cotton project. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And then we open it up for Q&A. So, you know, as, as you might imagine, people are saying, how come you're not doing organic? You know, are be, people being paid fairly? There's, there's lots of questions that come up. Hmm. And there's a lot of expectations that they're going to be able to do the best thing, the right thing, right out of the gate. But then you have to go all the way back. And Andrew's just getting paid fairly for the first time. So now what does that look like for the rest of the guys? Like Andrew had challenges with his crop, but he lost a lot of his cotton this year because it was so wet. So, mm-hmm. but we did still, you know, we are still able to get our 10,000 pounds. But then something happened with like the, the length of the cotton the, the staple and it wasn't there's going to be like little bumps maybe imperceptible to most but the you know the spinners were like or spun lab was like we just want you to know this isn't perfect to us so, so we've had to have these conversations like it has not been perfect even though we have an entire supply chain it's not perfect but yeah so we have the conversations we had a kickstarter or, or like a crowdfunding some crowdfunding for 2000 t-shirts that we sold as part of the, you know, a pre-order pre-order model. We sold 2064 t-shirts. So that took care of the B to C model for the t-shirts. And now we've taken the rest of the cotton that we are, that we will have and moved it over to our wholesale platform, which is TS designs. And now we're selling wholesale um, 10,000 pounds of cotton t-shirts. So it's kind of a, limited run that brands can brands or boutiques you can do black you know kind of like a private label but we're offering that and it comes with just a really good story so you know we definitely have people reaching out to us that love the story but what's been interesting is i get on a call with these guys before every like the week before our presentation and i tell eric i don't want you on it this isn't the good old boys club. I don't need it. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd rather be wet behind the ears and ask the questions. And so, okay, okay, you got it. So so I get on the phone and I, I, I ask them all kinds of questions. I I tell them I'm, I'm not so wet behind the ears that I don't understand greenwashing. So don't, you know, don't go down roads with me that, that, that you shouldn't. And just kind of keep them on track, keep them on track and, mm-hmm. you know, just have honest conversations. And that helps me be more informed as the moderator for that monthly conversation and really digging in. 
which I feel like we're getting, we're able to dig in more since the beginning. Mm. So, yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, I have so many questions just based off of everything that you've told me about this project. It's so interesting. But I guess one of the things that I'd like to add, which isn't necessarily a question, is that it is important for us as consumers and people who advocate for sustainability to really understand the amount of pressure we place on farmers Mm -hmm. and how much farmers go through. I mean, there is just the threat of nature that can affect a person's practice that cannot in any way, shape or form be controlled. And also it is a process to getting to sustainability like sustainability is a process it's not something that you just kind of flip a switch and you go okay yesterday I was a conventional farmer and now today I'm gonna go organic and everything's gonna be fine I mean it takes I believe like seven to ten years um, if you are working on land that has pesticides or if you've been spraying like it takes a while for to transform land and then also Farmers have to find processing facilities that will process their organic or, you know, like there's so Mm -hmm. many things that go into creating sustainability. And it really resonated with me, you talking about like, this is something that we're doing constructively and talking about greenwashing, which is a really, 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 really big problem. And I think Mm -hmm. what I've come to know, and, and maybe this is more of a recent assessment of mine, is that really, I feel like some of the conversations surrounding sustainability that aren't connected specifically to farmers can sort of put a fork between farmers and sustainability and consumers because it in a way can alienate farmers Mm -hmm. from participating in conversations because they do feel, um, they might feel, you know, like people aren't really understanding who they are and where they're coming from and what, Mm -hmm. what they're dealing with. And so Yeah, I absolutely understand everything that you're saying. And, you know, the project sounds so amazing. And I was watching one of the videos that you were just talking about the owner of TS Designs. I can't remember his name. I apologize. Eric Eric Henry. Yes, Eric Henry, where he was uh, talking with the farmer that you mentioned as well. And he asked him, he said, do you accept 75 cents a pound for your cotton? And he said, yes. And I think in people's heads, that's how they think. Uh, the market goes but the in reality it's nothing like that at all no yeah <laughs> and I just learned that LaShawn I, I didn't I didn't understand that the farmer didn't get to say what he wanted for his cotton it's like I was kind of thinking about how do you how do you make sense of something like that um, I go into a restaurant and I, I order some food I get my bill and I say I think I'm only going to pay you half you know right. restaurant owner I'm only going to pay half because that's what I feel like I should be able to pay you. And they're like, they'd be like, what? I'm calling the police, you know, like, are you out of your mind? But the farmer has been able, the the farmer has taken that since, you know, time began with farming. I mean, as as far as I know, I mean, it's always been dictated by the market. The farmer never gets to say what they want. So just starting with that, okay, if, if we give you 75 versus 50 cents a pound for cotton, and that, that 25 cents, whatever it is per pound helps you that much more. Like it, it just seems ridiculous that we wouldn't be able to, to meet the farmer there. But that's, that is what happens. And it, you know, if you think about it, down the entire supply chain, 
how many people really get screwed in in terms of you know let's let's whittle it down let's edit it down what's the let's let's you know we're going to get it down to the penny we're going to save a penny per per pound or a penny per garment or i mean it's just becomes foolish it's this is ridiculous especially when you're talking about people's lives and how much they have they get to live on in all parts of the supply chain and then you think about where's the sort of environmental piece too mm -hmm. if you're not putting in infrastructure to recycle water or to run on different forms of energy or to think about you know um cutting something so that there's less waste or like if you if you don't have any time to put into that and you keep doing things the way the same way over and over it's just kind of like you you never you can never move on so what again what i love about the 10,000 pounds of cotton project is that it's a huge you know we definitely have put on the brakes and i remember talking with andrew and i said andrew because it was a press event as well and i had gotten lots of press friends to come to come and listen and and you know like um Alden Wicker I remember was there from from EcoCult and Alden writes for everybody but Alden said let's get on a call after and she, and she was asking different questions which I was expecting her to ask these questions uh you know about the sort of organic piece or a regenerative piece or you know and I just for the first time in my life, and Elizabeth Klein was on the call, and Jasmine from, you know, Sourcing Journal and lots of other places that Jasmine writes for, you know, we had these conversations after that I said, you know, I feel like for the first time in my life, I'm actually standing up for the supply chain in a way. Like, we're going to have to deal with the fact that it's going to start out conventional. Like, mm -hmm. we totally have to, we're going to have to totally do that. And we're going to have to deal with, educating the educating the farmer and supporting the farmer financially for them to do anything so another brand that had been on that first call which was really an introduction our first one to, to the whole supply chain they had said in earlier conversations you know what were they doing in terms of you know equity for workers or were they looking at diversity in farmers? Were they looking at women's rights? Were they, <laughs> were they looking at, I said, Oh my God. Oh no, this dude's like getting paid the right way the first time. So maybe years from now he can, he can consider what you're saying. But for right now, we can't even go there. Mm. Like don't even expect it. That is, mm -hmm. that is, uh, it's just not going to happen. So knowing you have to put, all the things that you've believed in your whole career off to the side for a minute and really think about it logically and how to work with a farmer and the spinner and the ginner and the, this, you know, the whole supply chain. It's like, it's very humbling. I've, I feel like it's very humbling. Now, as I say that, I still don't feel, you know, fast fashion brands out there. You know, I don't, I don't support the work that they do. I do not support their, their supply chains where they're moving as fast as they are and they don't care about people and planet and they do greenwash. Like I will not meet them anywhere. Those, the fast fashion brands. And I will always make noise about the wrong things that they are doing. But in the case of something small like this, where we have an opportunity to create something good, it may be replicable. 
and not scale to some crazy amount either. You know, isn't that, doesn't it seem like a really good opportunity to try something out, especially when you have a whole supply chain there? Like, let's, let's just figure this one thing out and kind of jumping over to the Southeastern New England fiber shed. One of the projects, these kind of side projects that we're doing right now is we're, I'm working with a small brand who wants to make a vest and wants to use local wool. And so I've been able to connect an entire supply chain, including a freak happening that we ended up getting a bunch of wool from, from um, the University of Rhode Island because somebody had backed out of buying their wool. So my friend drove down with her pickup, got the wool, and hopefully that is something that can become part of her vest. Seems like all lights are kind of green light, green lights right now with moving forward. We're going to, it's going to be woven, uh, on old, these really great old machines that Peggy Hart, who's just kind of like our New England guru on wool and weaving is going to be doing. And, and we're, we're joining together even like, uh, today I was on a call with some folks who want to grow some natural dye plants. There's a lot of people that want to grow natural dyes suddenly. So that's my strength right now is the natural dye world. So I know the landscape, so I can really help out a lot with that. So we might have, it looks like we have one complete supply chain in this fiber shed, and we're going to learn a lot from it. So I'm excited to to do that. And I also had another interesting call this morning with a friend who wants to volunteer and help out a lot for this fiber shed and is working with uh, like a boutique hotel in Providence who's interested in having a live studio there. Maybe the live studio produces blankets for the boutique hotel or uniforms. Or So that was a pretty exciting conversation that we had today because we could do that. So now it looks like we're just going to have an impromptu, thanks Zoom, impromptu Zoom call with a bunch of people who don't know each other and just do, you know, here I am, five minutes, here I am. This is what I do. This is what I'd like to do. This is what I have to offer to you, to this group. So we're going to have that probably, what are we in again? Oh yeah, February. Okay, right. <laughs> probably sometime <laughs> the end of this month. Yeah. I mean, it, again, everything sounds so, so amazing and also just so considerate and so well thought out. Um, so very inspired by the work that you're doing. Thanks, LaShawn. And aside from these other really wonderful pro projects, did you have any other projects that you wanted to talk about? I do. Yeah. The natural dye world is blowing my mind. It's <laughs> <laughs> so I've been working for Botanical Colors for over eight years now. And Kathy Hattori, who's a, my one of my dearest friends and also my boss, we've been working hard to, to really start getting more U.S. farmers to come on board and start supplying us with dyes. So we've got, I think we have about 10 farmers now that are supplying us with raw dye materials. And that becomes a whole other piece of storytelling, which is, okay, you all keep asking us, you know, wish you had more U.S.-based dyes. We do. Now you have to buy them. So you're going to have to pay a little bit more, but you have to buy them. 
and we're not having any problems with people buying the dye. So that's been amazing. And then another part of what we've been doing is we started a whole donation page on our site because we have, I think there's five farmers that are represented there right now. So we're trying to work with um, just trying to get more diversity in for our farmers. So we can support more. So we have like a, a fund for black indigenous people of color farmers so that we can take in that money a hundred percent of it, except for like the PayPal fees or whatever, like the, the fees that just come out in the wash there. Mm. The rest goes to our, our five farmers and their projects and uh, just gets split between all of them. So we're excited about that and, and supporting, supporting our farmers but also letting all our farmers that we're working with understand what, what we do need. And then from those things, having all these raw dye materials, there comes another challenge, but it's actually an opportunity, which is can somebody in the United States please learn how to turn raw dye materials into extracts so we can use them in machines? <laughs> I'll second that. <laughs> yeah. Can we? I mean, are you kidding? Are we? Can we get some, some can we natural... Please? Uh, uh, manufacturing facilities. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. We just we... need some really good investment in some equipment. And there's so many people willing to do oh the work. God, I know. Get some money. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like the money is starting, you know, it's starting to raise its head. These investors are definitely circling. They're definitely circling us at Botanical Colors. They're definitely circling us at TS Designs. And they want to be part of what we are doing. We've, we've got everything we've got down to the nitty gritty, how much we need to do what we need to do. But in terms of the extracts, like making our own extracts, nobody I know that nobody I talk to knows how to do it. So I've talked to a couple people, West Virginia university. I was talking to a student there who loves problem solving. And I said, dude, if you can figure that out, you're going to be sitting on a gold mine. And also how about the color black? And let's see. And how about um, how to, you know, be able to do the fermentation for indigo. So it's not just, you know, we can't just like buy plants and do fresh leaf indigo dyeing. Like what are the different ways that we can start using indigo making cakes or the, I mean, nobody, I mean, I know Stony Creek is doing something with, with, you know, with indigo, but I, I still don't understand exactly what it is that Stony Creek does with, with the indigo and, and how it works in machines without being a fermentation fat. I feel like I need to do more homework on that. Mm. But yeah. I've also been curious about that as well, because I've seen uh, their website and I know that they are the most commercially viable mm -hmm. source of indigo in the U.S. at least. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've been very curious of how they are processing their indigo. It's there's definitely some chemistry involved in that, because I know I, I think you're still growing indigo. Are you not? I think you are. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, we both know, I mean, you cannot put indigo inside a machine. It's a, it's a hand done process when you're indigo dyeing something. You can get elaborate with how you do it, but you can't have indigo sloshing around inside a machine. Right. So I don't understand, but, but I look forward to researching it more. And it, honestly, I, I should have 
done that a long time ago just to better understand it. But but I don't know anybody who's doing extracts. So there's a real opportunity for natural dye farmers in the United States right now if somebody can figure that out. Mm. Yeah. And when you say dye extracts, you mean that can be used commercially, like in large machines, or you just mean in general? Yeah, I mean, with extracts, they're so fine. And they can just dissolve better so that they don't, they won't gum up a machine mm. in a dye house. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have people who want, you know, we do production at Botanical Colors too. And, you know, we will have people who will come to us asking if we can use uh, marigolds, our, our U.S. grown marigolds, for instance, to do some large production dyeing. We're like, oh my God, no, we can't, yeah. we couldn't. <laughs> You're talking about gigantic pots yeah. with marigolds floating and steeping and simmering and then straining. And yeah, you can't just throw them in a machine with a lot of hot water and, and think you're going to get a dye. Yeah. So mm-hmm. when you have something like an extract, you can measure it. You can create a recipe or some type of a formula that's replicable. You know, if I use this much, I can do this many T-shirts or this many dresses or whatever it is. But right now it's just sort of, it's not, that's not possible with the raw dye materials. Hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's so many opportunities out there right now for fiber people and farming people and, you know, ways to get involved. It's, uh, it's actually pretty heartening to see. So for all the challenges, there's the, yeah, definitely the opportunities. I refuse to look at it like it's all negative yeah, absolutely. And yeah. just listening to you and hearing you talk about all of the projects you're working on, it's, again, so inspiring, especially, you know, when I think about previous conversations we've had, um, it's just so nice to hear the steps and how you're just constantly moving closer and in, in getting closer to the goal. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. So, Botanical colors we have, you know, the pandemic, we we started this thing called Feedback Friday. So every single Friday, we have a presenter come on, and tomorrow will be week 41. I can't, 41 episodes of this Feedback Friday. (laughs) And we've had amazing people over those 41 weeks. So tomorrow we have um, Deepa... I'm not going to say her last name properly. I had her sound it out, but it's on a piece of paper. Ratanajaran. Oh boy, did I just butcher that one? Sorry, Deepa, if you if you're listening to this. So, what Deepa is going to be talking about ethnobotany and natural dyes, mm-hmm. and we had this every Tuesday before. We always have a conversation, Kathy, the pre- presenter, and myself. So we were talking Tuesday, on Tuesday about you know, these people who think about color and if it's not color fast, wash fast, light fast, then it's not a dye you should be working with. And we actually have a few women who, if I put anything up about like say Sasha Dorr, who uh, is one of my heroes and some of the colors that she gets, but things that are just around, you know, she makes these beautiful color dye, dye wheels. But I, the woman's like, it's not real dyeing. Those are stains. Those aren't colors that stay. And Deepa said, you have to think about what is the reason why I want color? 
Is it to, to be a, a journal? Is it because I want to do a run of things and have consistent color? Is it because I want to learn more about what water pollution is doing to color when I, when I do natural dyeing? Is it, you know, in the case of something that I, I've been doing, um, you know, I'm taking natural dyes and making these t-shirt necklaces from my father just passed eight weeks ago. And I had all these white V-neck t-shirts that my mom gave to me. So now we've been uh, making, my mom and I were making these, these necklaces and then dyeing them with these local dyes. Actually, we used my onion peels that I'd saved during the pandemic. Mm. And so the necklaces have become for me something that's my father's and something that represents the pandemic and the storage of stuff, meals, good meals that we had, even though all this stuff's been going on. So for me, it's like very, it's very sentimental. But if we go into thinking about every single thing that we do, that it has to be replicable, scalable, color fast, light fast, wash fast, then we're missing the point in sustainability, right? I mean, we're, Mm. you know, we're going to, we're all going to come at it in different ways. But to say that natural dyes, whether it's a beet that's just is a stain to something that's more light fast or wash fast, like weld or something, you know, like we we just have to come into these situations asking, what do we want from the process? Mm -hmm. And once we are able to answer that question, then we can move forward in the way that we should. Mm -hmm. And I feel also, I mean, you can get really beautiful, vibrant colors from natural dyes. It's just a technique thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. And also it depends on what you're working with. But I feel, you know, I used to get the same thing back in the day when I used to work at the farmer's market. I would do demonstrations and one of the demonstrations I would do was natural dyeing because that was kind of like my joy. And people would always be like, I understand that you just use this purple cabbage and I have this beautiful color of faint blue, but why? <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I would just, you know, I think at least, you know, when adding natural dyes to the market, we could at least not use chemical dyes in places where natural dyes can be used. Um, even if that's, you know, jeans. Like, yeah. why use a chemical denim when you can use indigo? Maybe you right. do want that really, really bright, hot pink that cannot come from nature, but indigo can absolutely come from nature. So why not replace that? Right. Yeah, I mean, there's so many... There's so many bright colors you can get. I mean, like I, I love going to go to Goodwill and getting white silk shirts and mm. I have the best closet right now. For, thanks. Thanks to this pandemic and just making constantly. I have, you know, these almost neon yellows from, from Fustic and Weld and onion peels. I have really hot pinks from Cochineal. And, um, you know, of course, way more indigo than I'll ever be able to wear, but I love, I love indigo so much. It's such a, like it's, it's its own beast (laughs) understanding how to, you know, keep a vat healthy and working for you. But yeah, lots of beautiful colors. And also, you know, I've been doing, I do a lot of bundle dyeing too. And there's like logwood, how amazing logwood purple is, or, 
How about a Coreopsis flower and that orange you get, that rusty kind of orangey color? I mean, it's just mind-blowing to me, the colors that you can get from natural dyes, and they will stay. And, you know, when we are asked questions, like, you know, almost always on Feedback Friday, somebody will say, but is it light fast? I've actually started skipping those questions when people ask because mm. I can't take it anymore. I mean, it's like, there's a lot of variables there, okay? So how often do you wash your clothes? What do you wash your clothes with? Do you dry your clothes in a dryer or do you hang them to dry? Um, you know, those are three three biggies just right there because dryers kill color. Um, you know, a, a harsh detergent will can kill color. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, when you're doing something like, not washing something or just, you know, spot cleaning, it's going to, the color will stay a lot longer than if you're washing it every time you wear it. And I, you know, whenever, because I've, when I've done like demonstrations and had conversations with people, they've had questions like that with, which always kind of take me back just a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that always is like the underlying factor of it is that we are blaming something for an issue or an outcome that we are portraying mm-hmm. like the the reason why you know the the clothes might fade is because we are using or we've implemented this system that is not conducive for the outcome that we want so as opposed to thinking oh we should fix the way we wash and dry we're just going to say no this is this entity doesn't have any value let's get rid of it mm-hmm. and i think you know, it's the systems that need to change, whether it is whether we're talking about a naturally dyed good or we're talking about a farming system. How do we get people to shift the focus into thinking about creating systems around what we want to see as opposed to trying to jump to what we want? If that makes sense. I don't know if, if, I, if I'm like putting that together properly. Yeah, no, I, I totally get what you're saying. I mean, I mean, think about it in terms of color. If we actually had like color bars out there where, you know, you, you brought your, you brought your clothes to, uh, a place to be naturally, to be re-naturally dyed or something, to get another dip in indigo, to get a bundle dyed kind of thing, like almost like a, I guess I never thought about it this way, but like a dry cleaner, right? Mm-hmm. Drop off your stuff, to, you know, pick the colors you want come back in a couple days and it'll be ready and and hanging and, and ready for you. But like, so how exciting you have something that's new, refreshed with natural dyes. Of course, it's a plant or animal based fiber that you're using because synthetics are not going to take that natural dye. But, you know, that could be, that could be a whole way of like re-dyeing, a re- re-dyeing kind of pop-ups or a chain that's out there. Just get people to think and that, that educates people that, uh, you know, like that's a, that's an idea. Like why aren't more people who create appliances creating, you know, I'm, I mean, you can like on my current dryer, I can put it on a low heat. You know, you can, you can kind of play around with the settings a bit, you know, but, but knowing that heat kills color, no matter what, if it's a synthetic or a natural, I mean, right better education mm-hmm. for consumers about high heat. And then with high heat comes higher bills and also more strain on just kind of the, the need for us all to be more energy efficient. I, mean, I wash everything in cold water and then all my clothes, I actually hang dry. 
the, you know, I have a son who, who does construction. So he's got really dirty car hearts and really worn out <laughs> things. And they just, they, if I put them outside right now, they'd be like pieces of wood from how cold it is out. <laughs> so I have to put that in the dryer, but you know, you just kind of take it case by case, but yeah, the, like the rethinking about the way that we, with the way that we handle our clothes, look at our clothes as having more than one life. And, you know, there's just so many ways to kind of rethink everything. And they're not hard. I'm not, I don't sew. I don't knit. You know, my mom's great at it. I don't do those things. And I always tell people, if in an apocalypse you need me, I will sew you something that looks like it's ready for the apocalypse, but definitely not for anything else. But, <laughs> you know, natural dyes are my thing. And, and I love playing around with color. Like tonight, I'm excited. I have a pot of the rest of that onion peel dye downstairs. And I have four pieces of wool gauze in there. Two mordanted, two not. And I'm going to do the Sasha door test where you over dye one with iron that's mordanted and unmordanted and then mm-hmm. you leave the other one kind of you know what whatever you so you end up getting four colors which is exciting to see that you can get four colors once you just modify things with like soda ash or vinegar or citric acid or just squeeze a lemon into something and swish it around the water and throw something in i have a himalayan rhubarb root a sweater i dyed in that and Kathy from Botanical Colors said if I just added a little it was soda ash, then I could actually make it go kind of a burgundy kind of a color from the yellow. I was like, what? And it's always sort of on the edge. There's little spots on it that I'm like, it just wants to be that color. I can tell. But, you know, I, I we just started selling sappinwood, which is like a really pretty pink, almost like a cochineal pink. But if you put a little calcium carbonate in the in the dye bath before you put your goods in, you can make it really like a really deep kind of a burgundy color, which is what I ended up doing. And now I have another one of those t-shirt necklaces for my sister-in-law that's like a really pretty deep purple. So it's like the more you play around with things, the more you understand how to manipulate color just using things that are around your house that are in your cupboards your refrigerator so they're it's not dangerous and then you know just kind of bringing new things to life with it all but there's also a math math that's involved and science that's involved so you start understanding color better and why color does what it does because of the composition of it and to me that's that's like geeky and mind-blowing and amazing I love it because I've never been into math and science. I'm an English. I was an English major, journalism major in college. So, <laughs> so that I even care about math and science right now is like, whoa. Yeah. Well, when you find something that you love and inspires you, you will probably <laughs> find yourself um, working with so many mediums and so many things that are unexpected. Yeah, I think the idea just. Of making in general, you know, whether it's mm. weaving or knitting or uh, dyeing paper, making paper. I mean, like our feedback Fridays when we first started, 
We had, it was a blog post we used to do every Friday. Kathy would answer questions. And then when we decided to go live, when the pandemic hit, it was just to like, let's get everybody so they don't feel so alone to join us on Zoom. Like the first one, we had about 35 people. And then the next one, we had about 70 people. And then the next one, we had a hundred people. And I will tell you, I, last week we had 560 people that RSVP'd and tomorrow just, just peeked in right before we talked and we have 400 people RSVP'd for tomorrow. And most of those people are actually starting to show up and not just half the amount. And one of the things we hear from, from people, we, we, you know, we'll get messages on social media, emails that people are just feel so happy to be part of a community and maybe there were a weaver, but they'd never used natural dyes and now they're using natural dyes. And then there were natural dyers who were never, who never knit that learned how to knit. And there's these crossovers that are happening with, with all these makers on Feedback Friday that have completely blown our minds at how tight the community is, how at the minimum 250 people, mostly women, show up every single Friday. Like, we have our own theme song that my husband wrote, which is uh, riffing off of 80s, weird 80s sitcom songs <laughs> that we play before. And people actually get up and dance. You can see them because we hold it like a meeting, not a webinar. So everybody, like, I always feel bad for the people who have never been. They're like, what the hell is going on right now? Why are people dancing? But it's just this Friday we come together as kind of like a church. It's a, it's the period at the end of a sentence where you didn't think the week could ever end. Maybe it was good. Maybe it was bad. But we have people who set their alarm clocks in the middle of the night in other countries just to get on. And I mean, I have never seen anything like this in my, my years in sustainability. I've never seen anything like this where. People just want to be together and talk about making things and, and get inspired and educated. I mean, we've, our, our business, like Botanical Colors is doing amazing through this because of the community that we've built. And we didn't start it to be some pitchy thing to, you know, have financial gains. We're like, we needed to do it for ourselves to connect because we were sad and lonely. And we thought it would be fun and it totally worked. And it, you know, ask anybody who, who comes every Friday. It's like they're, they're serious. Like they're, they're ready to get inspired. That's very exciting. I, I love it. I look forward to Fridays. These are like at this point. I, I mean, I just love them. I like, I actually tell them like, I love you guys. Thank you for showing up again. Thank you for helping me get through another week. And you know, we were happy we were able to do it for you too, but like you mean as much to us as, as, um, as we mean to you. Amazing. So it's been so wonderful talking to you today. And, um, before I ask you our closing question, is there a way that people can reach out to you on social media or the internet? You know, if you follow me on Instagram, that is your best bet. So I am Amy Tropolis on Instagram. And in my bio, it says, I have something like chief communicator at, 
Um, and it has a link to the Southeastern New England Fiber Shed. It has a link to TS Designs and it has a link to Botanical Colors. So find me on Instagram and then you'll find all the other places I've been talking about. Amazing. So before you go, we have one question that we ask everyone, and that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, again, kind of going back to Feedback Fridays and, and listening, you know, we've had weavers on, on the show. We've had, you know, whatever. I, I think, it's exciting for weavers to think about trying out natural dyes as part of their practice and just seeing like giving natural dyes a chance to be part of their design and a part of their, their color exploration. I just, I can't say enough how much it'll change everything that they do, especially if they really think about it, like place-based color or U.S.-based color or historical color that might go along with something that they're creating. That's, place-based or historical or so, you know, I would push your weavers to try out natural dyes because it's, it's a whole other rabbit hole that they should dive into. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all of the wonderful insights that you shared with us. Well, thank you for having this podcast and having so many great people on that I get to listen to. Uh, a lot as soon as it pops up on my phone that there's another episode i'm like yes <laughs> that's so sweet i can't wait till it says my name i was gonna be, i'm gonna be like whoa yeah <laughs> awesome take care all right you too that's a wrap if you're interested in supporting some of the projects mentioned in our conversation or to see a full transcript of this week's episode you can visit www.justyarn.com slash episode 133. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. Until next time, happy weaving. <laughs>